Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. We do this by informing, entertaining and enjoying ourselves talking property, which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, My Property World is free and fun, so plug in your headphones and enjoy. We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property World profile. Hello and welcome to another episode of My Property World. Today I'm joined by Adam Lawrence, uh, I suppose extraordinary, and he keeps saying uh, he doesn't feel too extraordinary, property entrepreneur. Great to have you on, Adam. Thanks, Will. Great to be here again. So Adam, uh, as a very quick backstory, uh, is a prolific property investor, uh, over 500 residential properties purchased, um, and it, and an economist at heart. Uh, he's, he has two, two degrees from prestigious uh, institutions, uh, Oxford and the University of Warwick, uh, which I got in trouble for mistakenly calling the University of Coventry. So my apologies to the Coventry-based University of Warwick uh, people. Uh, now, Adam, what, what are we talking about today? So effectively, Will, we're talking about perception against versus reality and try to bring some context to the current barrage of negative news headlines and some of the indisputable problems that the economy is facing um but how serious they really are what it really means for us as property investors um, <clears throat> um a little bit of what to expect within the next couple of weeks and the budget being delivered on the 23rd of March, 2022. Okay, so, so essentially, wh where are we really at, is the, is the question we're looking to, to answer. That's well okay. framed, Will, definitely, yeah. Right, so, uh, and I'm, I'm hoping we're going to cover a little bit of what does this actually mean and how, how should I think about things uh, as, a, uh, as an individual, as an investor, about what, what's going on out there. Um, because that's what we're paid to do as investors, is, is to think about what's coming down the road. Uh, and hopefully, you know, um, we've made some good picks uh, based on what we see. Yeah, absolutely. It's not optional to do that. <clears throat> you know, our option is to switch on or to switch off, really, where we can stick our heads in the sand. We, we have a desire. See, I see as, as uh, we go through life these days, society has an innate desire to pick a side make things binary, make it easy, you know, Brexit or remain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's more and more conservative or labor, whatever. Reality is just not that simple. And uh, so we can either pretend that we'll just wait for things to pass and hope that Vladimir Putin doesn't hit the nuclear button, or we can do some realistic worst case scenario planning and try and just keep on looking around that corner really well, even if it gets tougher. Right. So uh, what, 
what what are the big sort of two or three things in your mind about um, what what's going on at a macro level right now that that people are most concerned about and perception versus reality? So inflation has to be right up there. Um, I'm less concerned, I think, because I came to the realization and started talking and writing about it, you know, 14, 15 months ago now, uh, that there would be a prolonged period of inflation. Again, you go back to that binary choice, the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve and a number of other central banks around the world have been forced really into saying that it's transitory because ultimately they've got to manage expectations and the language that they use is interpreted and, and actions and expectations and investments uh, and capex is changed on the basis of what they say so i i believe i, I sympathize with their position and i think they've had to say it was transitory even if they didn't think it was then of course it's another one of those binary situations why is it transitory or secular you know by definition well at what point do we get to how long does it have to be when is it three years four months before transitory suddenly becomes secular what's the balance you know the reality is it's a continuum it's a spectrum it's either it, there's, there's two things really the actual quantum of the number so the us have released 7.9 this week no market did not blink did not bat an eyelid right because that was for the first time in some months within or below the expectation of where the number was going so the expectations have caught up with what's going on <coughs> and actually the expectation was eight or above so for the first time it was below the expectation so you've got that side of things you've got the absolute number eight percent is quite scary 7.9 and then you've got the direction of travel and everyone will feel a lot better when the direction of travel starts to come downwards. Now, the US, for a, a number of reasons, are two or three months ahead of us in the cycle as far as inflation is concerned. But also the, uh, the eagle eye will notice that we're also two and a half percent behind them in inflation returns. Now, naturally, over the past... 90 years we've had a trend we've had a tendency to have higher inflation than the states and that's primarily been because when they took over from us as the global reserve currency everybody wanted dollars and they didn't want pounds anymore so that's played out over a long that, again that's an oversimplification because people hold multiple foreign currency reserves of course but our trend has been downwards their trend has been upwards and therefore there's been those counter inflationary effects on the, the rates of inflation in the respective nations so that, that's, uh, you know, you wouldn't think you could say 8% or 7.9 is good news. Um, but in, in the context, actually, it doesn't look too bad. Now, what does then that 8% or 5.5% in the UK trending towards? I've now started saying that we're looking at 10 the way that the energy prices are going. We we'll may call it 8 to 10. That's the spread. That's the spread at the moment, right, in terms of where the peak will be this year. But we really need to be asking ourselves other questions like, how quickly is that peak going to be here? How quickly is it going to drop away? The expectation, and I do agree with this expectation, is that it will start to subside relatively quickly at a similar pace to which it picked up in the first place. This is pending... <coughs> 
<clears throat> the oil price in the Ukraine crisis, right? So let's see. We have to see what happens. It, you know, this week, Brent crude hit $139 in the very, very early trading on Monday morning. And we came right back to sub 110 and we're back to about 113, 112 as we're recording this, Will. So the massive amount of volatility that obviously filters through into the prices at the pumps and people are seeing, you know, highest petrol on record. But again, when you talk about context, <clears throat> what would be really useful is if we looked at a chart of petrol prices, if we were going to use that as the yardstick, inflation adjusted. And then we would get a much better picture of where we truly are now. You know, for Brent to hit the price that was the equivalent of the 2008 previous highs at the petrol pumps, and we all know what happened in 2008, and this is the nature of crises, things go outside of their normal parameters, you know? Mm -hmm. We would see that today we would need Brent to be 220 a barrel, which, whilst it's possible, Russia cuts off the rest of the world or whatever, you know, there's going to be some, some interesting things happen. I don't think OPEC would be delighted about that, to be honest, but there could be a, a, a random spike upwards to 220 um, if that did happen, or if there was a, a permanent damage to infrastructure that moves gas and oil around the world, or, or what you know, something something like that could happen. Um, but that's where you know, with 112, 113, basically it needs to double from here for us to get to the actual real terms high. So mm -hmm. we need to keep a lid on our own emotions around things like that. Um, and that's hard when people are now paying 60% more for petrol and diesel than the, than the low that it touched uh, during the pandemic. But of course, if you cherry pick the start date of all of your analysis and graphs, you can prove anything you want with statistics. So need to be need to be cautious about that. But the obvious implications of that are around, well, if we stick to, stick to inflation first, we'll come on to oil later, right? The implications are that in times of significant inflation, people bring purchases forward. They also start to lose confidence in the system. Now, <clears throat> this is something I've talked about for some time. The danger that the, the, you know, the ideal rate of inflation, in my mind, that the government and, and probably the Bank of England really consider have following on from the pandemic, the debt that was built up during the pandemic is about three to four percent. But the problem is when you have an upside shock, you would rather have 1% underlying and a 200 basis points upside shock than have 4% underlying and have a 100 basis point shock because it takes it outside of those parameters. Uh -huh. And there's always a danger of running away. And that's effectively what happened in the 70s. And that's what concerns everyone so much, realistically. Now, I think there's still a lot of logic behind uh, holding hard and seeing just how quickly inflation subsides. I think the problem that we, you're not seeing in the headlines, because obviously, <laughs> silly as it sounds, news reports what's already happened, it very rarely reports on speculation. That's our job, ultimately. Um, you know, the, 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 the steady state rate of inflation right now is above 5%. The core, uh, there's, there's, there's many, many interesting ways to subdivide inflation. Uh, and they do a lot of this in the US. Um, the, the, the individual states, federal reserves, do quite a lot of um, trimmed means and lots of clever stuff. But one of the interesting things that I looked at this week 
was sticky prices. So particularly um, petrol is a pretty good example. As oil goes up, price goes up quite a lot. As oil goes down, they're a little bit slower in reducing what the price is at the pumps. They're very quick to increase. They're quite slow to decrease. Now, that's an example of a sticky good. And sticky prices don't really come down again after they've gone up. Now, in the US, the sticky prices, inflation is running at somewhere between 4 and 5%. So that's the kind of bad news inflation, if you like. Not like some of the commodities that are just going all over the place in their pricing at the moment. These are basically permanent price increases. So what's the fear? What's the incidence of that? People on fixed incomes... Are in, are in some trouble. They're really losing permanent purchasing power. They're not just having to do baked beans on toast for three months or whatever. So at the macro level, you're talking ultimately irreversible potential changes. Um, and you're talking, you know, if we look at the how that bleeds through into fiscal policy, for example, with the budget coming up, um, you know, a lot of things have already been set. I've already said before, pensions rises set to 3.1%. Local housing allowance component of universal credit or housing benefit frozen. Going into the working populace, all of our allowances frozen. The current chat is until April 2026 still. At some point before the election, we're going to see some easing on that because what we need to also bear in mind is there's an element to which some of the inflation is good news because when the government collects excise duty on fuel, it's as a percentage, right? It's not just VAT. It's, it's, there's much more duty than that. So when fuel hits 199 for a litre of diesel, as it has in some places this week, then the, the, the government slice of the pie has gone up, right? So they've got inflation working. Inflation is there their secret weapon, their agents working on the uh, ground. It's kind of a, a double winner uh, if you've got a lot of government debt as a government. But it really, it really, really is. And that's why even at these very dangerous levels, there's a little bit of the government that will be thinking, well, as long as the lid stays on it. But then the problem is, you know, Russia going to Ukraine and ex external factors, despite the might of the government, they, they can't control um, the market's reaction to that sort of thing, apart from anything else. So it, it very much is a double winner. So what does that mean? It means there's more money in the coffers, right? So let's fill the glass up and consider it to be half full there, Will. They've got funds. And the, 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 the go back to the direction of travel conversation, some of the forecasts last year were very, very miserable. The OVR produced the forecasts in the middle of the, the second lockdown when there was still significant uncertainty about COVID. So, of course, when time plays out, there's more money in the coffers than they thought. Now, the direction of travel is still going to continue to be positive until the OBR's forecast goes too far, which might be, might have been, I'll say, what would have happened for this budget. But because of the Ukraine situation, the OBR will be particularly bearish in what they deliver. I've said that I'm a, a seller of the, the GDP figures that came out that have now been revised down because of the Ukraine situation. Uh, I'm still a seller. I still think they're too high. So, like so just, just, just straight on to that inflation point uh, at an uh, individual investor. Sure, uh, inflation has an impact on the government, on the wider economy. And yes, 
I, I am part of the wider economy. But what does this actually really mean for me? For, if I'm holding property, I've got debt on, on the property, what, 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 how should I be thinking about this better? Well, let's do our let's do our glass half. Let's do our long term and short term for the individual investor. Then, right? So, good news in the long term: inflation dragging wages upwards, forcing that spiral upwards. What does that mean? Houses become more affordable. If you then, if you go back again to our point about the real oil price, the real house price is still around about ten percent below its peak in two thousand and seven. We don't really want it to be getting to that that peak to be honest, because it's it, relatively unsustainable, potentially unsustainable. Really, wages have to grow beyond the rate of inflation for it to, to be a sustainable peak. Um, so we've got to consider, uh, the, from the debt point of view, the debt's inflating away at a higher rate than before. So when we look at total returns over time, most people make a significant amount of the money they make from property either by refinancing on the way along or at the end when they sell it or they exit their business or, or however. Um, so a, a, a lot of their uh, return is generated by the value versus the cash flow on the way through is what you mean? <clears throat> to a large extent, especially people who are based in and have built their portfolios in around the southeast where, you know, running yields are low. And uh, if anything, you know, yields have gone down in the last couple of years. Because capital capital values have raced away from rents, even though rents are up a reasonable amount and uh, are performing much better than they have done for years and years, capital values have still raced away. This is the year where there may be a bit of a rebalance, but still, you know, if you went back five years, you're still looking at a lower yield environment than you're looking at today. So in the long term, as investors, our debt is inflating away. We want to be taking out as much of that debt as we can. Uh, the prices have gone up a teeny tiny bit, maybe a quarter of the basis point, a quarter of a percent um, when it comes to mortgage debt that you can fix a five-year term, let's say. But actually, the real cost of that it has never been in such a good good space because the three and a quarter percent for a five-year limited company fix, let's say, and five and a half percent for the headline rate of inflation, what's the real there's a difference between the two. It's minus two and a quarter percent, right? So in real terms, we're getting paid to take that money out. Now, you still need to be investing that money at a better I, I think it's worth um, just repeating that slowly um, as an emphasis, that this is a huge point here because yeah, most, people, most people who are expanding a property portfolio at least consider adding some debt into the mix. Um, and and uh, if if I understand you correctly, we, we should be trying to get as much debt as possible uh, at this time if you can fix. Absolutely. Provided it, it can within, be serviced, obviously. Within the and absolutely, and within the confines of you know a seventy-five percent mortgage at three percent or an eighty percent mortgage at four percent, the the cost of that extra five percent loan to value is not one percent. It's it's actually huge. It's fifteen percent actually uh -huh. do the numbers so know what the total cost is and you, you still you know you create a problem when you give yourself liquidity don't you what if you look at Bart, if you look at the go straight to the big man the sage of omaha the proper sage right <laughs> they've got 160 billion 
cash on the balance sheet at the moment, right? Berkshire Hathaway. It's a big dough. <laughs> it's 160 billion. And that's losing money at a significant rate. So the drag on their returns. And this is why Berkshire tend to trade quite cheap because people don't like that huge war chest. They want it to be deployed. Um, but also, I think maybe what Uncle Warren isn't telling everyone is that he's just not so sure there might not be a bit of an event like in 2008 where he utterly cleaned up because Goldman's were not get on the door saying, can you lend us 15 billion or whatever we need to recapitalize quite quickly. Um, there's been, been an incredible amount of value destroyed this week because of Russia. I saw, I think BlackRock were down something in the order of 70 billion or something like that. So I mean, incredible, incredible numbers for, for uh, a non-governmental organization uh, just because of write downs on Russian assets. Um, but going back to the, the longer term, for the investors, it looks quite good because house prices and inflation, house prices are dragged forward by the inflationary effects in the economy and the debt gets cheaper in real terms. And so those effects matter. Their, their rents should go up. Their capital values should go up more than they were because of these inflationary effects. So overall, that's good news. Where are the dangers? Well, go back to uh, if your tenants are on fixed incomes, if you've got a large LHA portfolio, you'll have significant concerns. I've certainly got concerns over my bits at the moment where there's no increase in the local housing allowance. And then the energy bills, you know, they, they will generally have relatively low energy bills. Um, but if you go from 40 quid a month in a little one bedroom flat somewhere to 80, that extra, that extra 40 quid isn't there. It's not in the budget. It has to come from somewhere. So even if the local housing allowance is paid direct, it's being frozen. If it's being frozen, then in real terms, we're getting a lower real rent because of inflation. Right? There's no room to put it up. You're just going to be driving people onto the street. So if you were housing pensioners, if you were housing uh, generalists, pick on anybody, single mothers, any particular demographic that would be the main claimants of local housing allowance, then you've got a potential, well, you've got a real terms problem there. And then if they're paying you, if you're not getting the rent direct and they're paying you, then at some point, especially when we get to say Christmas 2022, and they've got to make those choices between the Christmas presents and the rent and the heat, there's there's a real problem coming there. And they're going to need some support. And, and I think if the government don't see this in the budget coming up, then they'll, they'll rue that day. There's some really tough decisions to be made, as tough or, or nearly, as, nearly as tough, not as tough, but nearly as tough as during the pandemic in, in the upcoming few months. And this is the first really big one of those. You know, Rishi's already a bit of a tinker with the energy. Things have deteriorated since he did that last announcement. And there's, so, uh, like there's a wider uh, debate about um, sh should uh, society or, sh or should the government um, be looking after people to, to what extent, essentially, is the question. Um, and the, the reality is, straight economics, if you don't up the benefit or the housing benefit subsidies, there will be increased, massively increased homelessness. End of. And, and there's an enormous cost of housing a homeless person versus subsidising them and uh, in, uh, effectively uh, like benefit tenant level um, local housing allowance subsidised housing. 
which uh, <laughs> I, I would like to add, there's uh, approximately 17% of the population that's their primary source uh, of housing uh, or, or where they get their rent. No, we're not talking about uh, like a tiny fraction. You know, it's it's well, one in six or, or whatever it is. It's such a good point that even the most ideological conservatives do have a grasp. Th 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 there's a, a an point. equivalent in the NHS with with, uh, with the use of agency nurses. Uh, one of the one of the reasons, uh, or, or the um, uh, not hiring more direct NHS nurses. Uh, the cost of hiring a, a, an agency nurse is typically, say, 50% more yeah. when you add all the margins and the, yeah. Um, yeah. the what have you. If they just hired some more nurses, it, it would cost them far, far less because they, uh, it, it's a requirement. That's a medium-term medium problem that's, you know, austerity was a very, very ideological, very poor policy, very, very poor. We missed the investment opportunity of a generation. Now, actually, because of the pandemic, another investment opportunity of a generation has come along. I'm not saying that we've necessarily invested that in the best possible thing, but it, what, when we go back to context and balance, you know, there, there's this 950 billion, it's actually been revised upwards, but nearly a trillion pounds going on to household balance sheets in 2020. Now, households have not gone out. They didn't go out in 2021 and start firing that around the nightclub. You know, none of that went on. It stayed. You know, there's, there's building society results that have been released this week saying that assets under management are up 12%. Now, people have, that means money's gone into the building society in a time where the interest rate has been between zero and 1.1%, depending on how long they'll lock it away for. And it's gone up by 12%, right? So there's savings out there. So... The, and the government will obviously know this as well. There's an initial buffer zone of this money being there. But the problems that that creates are, from a political perspective, the feel-good factor or whatever you want to call it, it goes back to the point around the direction of travel. Whilst balances are going up, everybody's happy. When the balances start coming down because inflation is biting so hard, everybody's unhappy. And they don't remember back in 2020 when the government really looked after them with furlough or whatever the... You know, wherever you benefited from the teat of the state and hopefully, hopefully, you know, you did one way, directly or indirectly. And some of that was because most of the policy was pretty bloody good in the circumstances. Um, what's the incidence of that? Does anybody care about that in November 2022 when they can't fill the car up because it's £2.50 a litre or whatever, whatever might, you know, whatever might occur? Um, they, they don't. They've got the they, short term memory, what they see in the now. So. We've got issues around our tenants' affordability. We've all got our own issues, obviously, around our own affordability. So, you know, classic property investor, asset-rich, cash-poor, if you've got 10 HMOs, and every HMO now costs £1,000 a year more to run, and it will be at least that, and then if the valuation office and the local authorities are putting pressure on council tax banding by the room, you know, you're getting hit from all angles here. And the market, and the problem is the market will lag. So you won't be able to put your rents up today. You might well be able to in three to six months. We were talking, what's the what's a funny seesaw at the moment? Flights are going up massively because of the cost of kerosene, apart from anything else, and the futures costs, right? 
But if you staycation, you know, you're also going to have an increased right for the, for the those who are running their holiday lets as a business. And there's lots that aren't. So this is not an across the board thing. You want to look for, you know, the mom and pop one that's uh, a little annex on the side of the house or a, a cottage on the farm or something. Um, um, or ideally where they're getting their power from renewable sources. That's another way they can keep their costs down. But some people will see it coming and put prices up on the basis of staycations. Uh, some and, and some people will be forced into staycationing because the flights have got so expensive. So some will not see it coming. And then in October, November time, think, blimey, we haven't made very much money this year or we're losing money or whatever. And then they'll, then they'll realise why, because they're not running it as a business, you know. So... There's, there's all sorts of individual impacts there. And if you're running service accommodation slash furnished holiday let, there's obviously some significant things in there for you. You know, again, tilt over to the, the positive side of the spectrum. The, the IRR, the returns available on solar PV systems, have just gone up in a big, big way, right? Because ultimately, they're costing roughly the same. They're obviously inflationary pressures in PV like there are everywhere. But they're costing roughly the same. And ultimately, instead of getting your money back in 13 years, which might not have been a, a, an acceptable return, you're getting your money back in six years, which is a 16, 17% ROI. And the requirement for that, when you think about time, effort and risk, the requirement for that is the sun comes out. Even if there's clouds, you still get paid, right? So it's a pretty, it's a pretty good bet. So it's finding those those micro and, and of course it's your portfolio will ultimately what matters to you um and that, that, where is that the hmo uh, room demand i think is a, a really interesting one so it is uh, affordability is being squeezed in the wider market uh, it's logical that people who have a, a choice between taking a a one bed flat and we'll just say uh, that, that it's a thousand pounds for for uh, for that, or or going into an H HMO room at we'll say five hundred pounds, there's going to be a lot more people doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the other side as well that we need to consider, and that's good. That's good news as that kicks in for HMO landlords because it means increased demand. But the other side of that as well is. Will we see what we saw during 2020, which is what happened when it hit the fan? The HMO demographic is a younger demographic, generally speaking. They went home to mum and dad because they couldn't afford it anymore. So we'll see a few households not formed or unwound or re-merged, if you like, because of what's going on with the inflationary situation. So mm -hmm. lower household creation doesn't really help any of us. It's not, not an ideal one because that age-old argument around we don't build enough houses etc etc you know it, it means if you add nine months onto the age of the average first-time buyer which might be what's going to go on over the next year or so or whatever or you add three months a year to the average age of the first-time buyer um think about first-time renters as well we don't tend to talk about first-time renters as a thing a lot of landlords don't particularly like to take them because there's a bit of a punt involved um sometimes but the, if the average age of the first time renter goes up by a similar amount, there's lower rental demand in the sector. Now, on the bright side of that, again, the thing is the supply of stock is shrinking. And the, this is how many straws can you put on the camel's back since 2015? There's one more thing. There's one more thing. It's like Colombo, right? I can see him with his cigar knocking at the door going, there's just one more thing that bothers me here. 
and, there's, and then there's going to be more and more and more and everybody breaks at some point to an extent unless you've got an institutional slash corporate mindset realistically um and of course it's easy to sell at the moment because there's been big capital growth so unless you're stuck in some kind of big capital gains trap you can think well do you know what just get rid of it get rid of it sell it to me uh, okay, so, so I'd like us to hone in on energy, energy costs, EPC. What what the government uh, option? What options are open to the government uh, now? Um, you know, I, I I keep thinking they should be building more nuclear power plants, but that's not the the uh, full solution. Well, it's not fast enough as a solution. Well, it's twenty years to get them online. You know, there are smaller and. Um, faster to get online solutions. Rolls-Royce is involved in quite a few of them. There's still four to five years to come online. And there's, there's still the politi local political lobby in terms of, you tell Bridgewater that it's having another Hinkley point, they'll go, well, do you know what, okay, because we've already got A, B and C, yeah? You tell Westminster that they're having a small nuclear facility put in the basement of wherever, there might be a bit of pushback there, I think, that uh, that would be difficult to manage. So new locations for nuclear are an issue. It's, it's just too slow. The, and they, the, they, the anarchists they, might argue that's the solution. But um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's, not, let's not go full Guy Fawkes, you know. It's not, it's not the, way. the Guy Fawkes of the 21st century. Um, yeah. I, don't think, I don't think that's the answer. So no, ultimately, no, agree, there are no, there's no quick fixes here. Even if we turn around and, and move the moratorium on shale, in the UK, yeah? And we said, we turned around and said, you know what, that was probably a mistake. We're not self-sufficient enough. There's downsides to shale, but the upsides are, are bigger. And mm -hmm. hegemony and control over our electricity and gas is a significant thing. And how do we address that? Well, in the long term, we're already trying to get off gas anyway, right? Now, I see that as the very long term. I see that as a 2050-style thing, realistically, um, if, if not beyond. Um, but things will move according to prices and economic uh, incentives. And, you know, overall, we, we've all seen houses that haven't been touched for 40, 50, 60 years. So uh, you're not going to cut them off suddenly from, uh, from providing them with no gas, realistically. So, um, so when we come back, coming back around to sort of energy overall and how we, well, the, the context of everything, you know, on the base level, prices are up significantly because of, um, the war situation, apart from anything else. Brent hit 139 a barrel on Monday morning, pre-trading. But the like I said earlier on, it's 112, 113 now. So it's come back a long way, but it shows the level of volatility that there is. And we said earlier on, the prices are sticky. So they go up and they come down a little bit slower, or, or sometimes a lot slower. Um, so there's, there's pain at the pumps for, for, for a, a, a little while yet. And the, the, the micro implications of that per household are the affordability ones that we've already talked about, but it also feeds that inflation that we've already talked about because everything to move it from A to B or to sell it from me to you or vice versa requires energy. So the implications are huge and they're huge at a time where there's already significant inflation. So what, what, what could be a possible solution what could be a bit of joined up thinking for the government? The EPC stuff is set. In my view, it is set as there's something they're going to do. They're not really looking to move on it. They're very, very serious about it now. Um, the direction of travel to me is very clear. So it would be an idea to get some grant schemes out sooner rather than later around 
forcing the PRS to get their properties up to a C or higher by 2025, 2026, slash 2028, current timings, current plans. So that would have a double whammy effect, which is huge at the moment, a double whammy effect of if you insulate the houses, what's it going to do for the tenants? It's going to keep the bills down, you know? When you build something that's got incredible thermal performance and U values in the walls and all the rest of it, you know, your bills are absolutely tiny because you just don't need much to heat that airtight box up, realistically. So that could have a big impact. And if they pulled their finger out, quite a lot of proactive landlords would do quite a bit before winter comes. You know, one of the things we didn't talk about much as we come out of winter and into spring is this wasn't a cold one, Will. We had our storms. There were a few bits of them usually are these days, let's face it, but it wasn't a particularly cold one. If, we, if 20, winter 22 is a big freeze on top of 54% up here and 34% up here on the price caps and whatever else, there's a big problem coming down the pipe that we didn't really, we didn't really face. You know, what can you do on the micro level? So, yes, insulation, if, if it's there to be done, education of your tenants people are really not well educated on this stuff if you go and ask someone outside of the, the little bubbles that we live in will you go and ask someone what's the epc on your house they just look at you in a blank way they have no idea what you're talking about now how the government can help to address that i'm not really sure but you can't really wait for the government to educate people they've not done the world's best job over the years over the last hundred years realistically you have to educate yourself or proactively get involved in educating your tenants how to save money on bills, how to, some of this will be about avoiding damp. There'll be a real damp um, knock-through effect of people keeping their heaters off, right? How do you address that? Well, PIV systems, you know, positive input ventilation stuff, once put in costs, you know, a pound a week to run and things like that. Um, ma massively helpful in certain properties. Um, you might be able to kill two birds with one stone and address problems on external walls with EWI or even IWI, damp courses. But it's all it's all capex, isn't it? That's the thing. So, so then you've so got to raise money on, on fixed debt to do it. So, so the government uh, have uh, a, a number of tools in their tool belt to deal with this. Um, and, I don't know. Can we say this is actually a energy and affordability crisis? I think we, I think at this point we can. Yeah, I think at this point we can. But I think we shouldn't underplay how much money a decent section of society have had have got saved up to be able to buffer some of it. So what if we don't need to panic now about suddenly people not being able to afford stuff. We do need to worry about that seventeen percent that rely on the LHA. You're absolutely right. Uh, and you're absolutely right to, to highlight the, the vast costs, 50 to 100,000 pounds a year of, of a homeless person versus, you know, 15,000, 20,000 on the benefit system. There's a there's a mathematical economic implication to that, as well as a societal one. Um, but yeah, sorry, you're saying that the government have got a number of tools in their belt to potentially address this. That's and, right. and it's a question of whether there's a uh, an appetite in a conservative government to consider nationalisation, to consider uh, capping of corporate profits, uh, to consider huge subsidisation of an industry that uh, is, is sort of rapidly becoming uh, one of the most unpopular 
uh, in public sentiment. Yeah, it's a Nearly very easy win for a government themselves. to start booting the, the energy companies. Yeah, and, do, and, is and, it actually they need a hand? What, what, what's the what's uh, what, what are the options? What are the answers? Uh, and what what's the likelihood? So quick fire through through those. Plus, uh, you know, if you, I'm sure you'll you'll be aware of a couple of others. It would be a real classic to nationalise now, where you know they benefited massively from their futures contracts and selling that energy at much higher prices than they predicted that they would. They've had massive windfall profits from what's happened. That's now going to ever away because they've had to buy futures at huge prices um, and they're going to trade to very thin margins. So it would be it'd be about as good timing as when Gordon Brown sold off the gold reserves at you know a couple of hundred dollars an ounce or whatever it was when he when he did that. You know, really really poor. So ideologically, I believe this government would be significantly opposed to nationalisation. The 1922 committee would be having kittens left, right and centre. And, you know, whilst all the chat has moved away from the pressure on Boris and Partygate for the moment, you know, there's still people who were penning their letters of no confidence, remember, right? So we should, we, we, we live, or Boris lives with that in the background once the Ukraine crisis starts to be somewhat more resolved. So I think no chance of nationalisation. I think they're much more likely to look at the other tools they have available, you know, Rishi has already tinkered with that. You're going to get £150 in October and then you're going to have to pay it back over a few years or whatever that none of us particularly understood. But what he's doing is he's indicating that willingness to get directly involved. Now, he's a free market thinker and a much more traditional conservative than Boris Johnson, right? And he doesn't have autonomy, as you know. He's ultimately was brought in because... Uh, Sajid Javid would not dance to the tune of Boris Johnson and Rishi would more dance to the tune of Boris Johnson. Let's, let's not forget that, right? So that doesn't necessarily go away. And Sunak's political capital, whilst he's impressed a lot of people, is not there that he's the entrenched, definitely next leader of the Conservative Party as yet. Although obviously he's a, a front runner or the front runner, realistically, as and when that conversation comes around again. Um, so... He will be very aware of the dangers of getting directly involved in tinkering with markets. No one, no country, not the USA, can't get involved in some of these markets and hold prices anywhere. As that's happened over the years, that's how you have the breakdown of Bretton Woods. That's how you have George, the man who breaks the Bank of England. That's how you have LTCM 1994 Swiss franc, Russian ruble, etc. You, you can't stop the tidal wave, right? So you have to be careful when you start tinkering with this stuff. Um, so I think there's a few things on the table and I think they've got willingness to do them. And I think we should go back to the conversation about inflation and excise duty and VAT. There's going to be one of the noises that comes out of the budget will be Basically, guys, there's a bit more money in the shaker than we thought there would be. That's going to be a continuing theme. And therefore, we can X, Y, Z. Now, we've still got waiting lists that are getting worse before they get better. We've still got educational gaps because of the pandemic and just because of the overall failings is a harsh word, but at an aggregate level, failings of some of the education policy over the last 50 years, not to blame any particular in the post-war period, realistically. 
you know, there's, there's things to spend that money on. Um, and, and just to be clear, with waiting lists, you're talking about hospital waiting lists versus uh, waiting for a solicitor to return your call. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think the latter is not well well documented. Although I think we could uh, we could certainly wax lyrical about that for a while, will that's for sure. Yeah. But I am talking about hospital waiting lists. You're right. Yeah, yeah. So you know, the, the, go back to the other point. They know fixed income is going to get hammered in terms of benefit system, which would include the pensioners, right? So they, they if they're smart, they'll do something before the pain is felt. There's, there's two ways to look at that household saving balances point, right? Some people, a, a decent percentage, will be better off in real terms than they were at the beginning of 2020. The ones who are worse off and much worse off, there's a gap in inequality that there hasn't there's a, not been too much quality analysis around that because there's so much other news at the moment that people are focusing their attentions elsewhere ultimately um but do you want if you're the government do you sit back and say do you know what they can run down their savings balances or do you sit back and say i think we need to do something for the pensioners uh, you know, ideologically, forget about the people on LHA, we're the Conservative Party, right? Sod them, so we don't, don't worry. But we do worry about the economic impact of homelessness, right? So that's one one point. From the pensioners' perspective, we need the, we need there's local elections coming up, Will, in May. Classic bellwether of how's it going in Parliament, guys? What's the what what will that change for the, the odds for 2024? I wonder if I'm still going to be drawing my 84,000 quid a year. That's rather nice little little tickle as an MP, you know. Um, I need to kind of make sure my own survival, plus the obviously front bench ministers getting paid enhancements for what they do. You know, they need to need to be looking after number one. Ultimately, that's what they do. So let's get proactive and just try and take some of at least the winter pain away from the pensioners before they even see it coming. Because if they don't do that and they're not smart. They'll get into 2023 with a much bigger hole in the bucket, and then suddenly it'll need to be the world's biggest giveaway, and it will be cynically approached. It'll be really problematic to fund, which would be the bigger issue. And then the whole tough on crime, you know, tough on budgets, tough on the old mantras of the Conservative Party are ebbing away. Now, they're probably quite lucky that I don't know if Labour really understands a lot of that, to be honest, and I don't know where this iteration of Labour can really attack those policies particularly well. Um, they're too busy fighting about whether you're a Jeremy Corbyn fan or not still, which is their, their problem and their failings ultimately at, at the moment as a party, as an opposition party. Um, so I think we'll see uh, there's a willingness to tinker and there'll be some guns drawn. I don't see nationalisation as, as anything, you know, it would take a, a, a really, really significant event. And I think if they did it, it would be temporary. It definitely wouldn't be uh, have any level of permanence to it. But it would take a much bigger crisis. It'll take Russia to switch off the taps to the rest of the world and persuade a number of other countries to do the same, uh, which is, you know, going to put some countries back in back 100 years in terms of their, their technological and general overall economic growth and position. Yeah, it's, so there's lots of movement. Um, and as, uh, as you said at the top of the show, that there's a, um, there needs to be some balance to our thinking uh, about these things. Um, what, what would be uh, like the two or three key questions 
people should be thinking about uh, as an, as property investors uh, look looking over um, not not the the next sort of six months but the next six to ten years. Well, the, the, the your overall debt position and your financial structure. This is if you haven't got your house in order on that front. This is the time because this is not going to be optional over the next six to ten years. You're going to need a tight structure to be able to survive. There's likely to be margin pressure. Yeah. There's likely to be. This is why you want to see these things coming. If you've got 10 HMOs and you haven't considered some of this stuff, then there's a hole in your cash flow, dear Liza, in six months time. Right. It's coming. It's coming. It's already happening from April the 1st, but it's, it's getting bigger from October the 1st. Right. So cash flows, planning, basic business stuff right around around that needs to be at the, at the front of your mind. Where's the medium term future of the EPCs? If you've got, you know, you've got choices, you can sit on stuff. Well, you've always got choices. You can, you can pretend this isn't going to happen. That's a head in the sand approach, I think, or, or just a misinformed approach in my view. Don't do that. You can look at what you can afford to do more easily. You can educate yourself because the document itself is not ideal. You know, we had a fantastic sustainability consultant at Partners in Property London yesterday, informing everybody about the, the direction of travel, the changes, what matters, and how the measurements are going to change in June. And all. So, you know, you, you might wait and see what the government does in terms of its scheme, in terms of its grant schemes that are going to have to come out to support some of this. Um, and there's usually an energy grant role. There's, there's always grant money in the local authority or, or central, and or central government at any one point in time. So educate yourself on that. What's your local authority offering? Um, what are they doing for low-income tenants? Low-income low households now count as things like under 30K income after considering rent. Now, that's a fair few of the households that we rent to, certainly because we're in cheaper parts of the country um, and or there might only be one income owner, one income earner in that household. Um, so there's a significant amount of support already available, but if there's, the market's not pricing this stuff in yet. So go back to the previous conversation, there's been the crest of a wave. Is it worth selling something off and taking advantage of this market? You know, We're still in a place where stuff goes on at a realistic price, gets 42 viewings, 11 sealed bids, and you know you pick the best one. If you're smart, you pick the best one rather than the highest one. It's not always the same thing. Um, so, you know, revise in terms of even if you're a long term accumulator, like my, like I am, my, my group of businesses is you still want to look at every individual property on its merits. Right. So, so do that. So look at what's it going to cost to sort the EPC and don't think as well as part of what's the current regime. You can get an exemption. Right. That's great. Oh, so you can get, get around the rules. Right. Well done. The problem that you're going to have is that. There won't be all the rules that you'll get around, even if the exemptions stay the same, which is the best assumption that we've got at the moment, right? If you can only get to an E, then your mortgage lender come 2025, 2026 or before, is going to be going, well, I, we don't lend on E's anymore, or we do, but it's 4.78% when it's 3 point something for a, for a, for a C EPC. So, the exemption won't exempt you from more expensive insurance and it won't exempt you from more expensive 
money, more expensive mortgage interest rates because um, the lenders are being <coughs> taken down the path at the same as the RICS are being taken down that path as everybody is being taken down that path. So that's where, you know, that, I think that's what you've got to be considering over the next number of years. And that there's worse times, you know, capital gains tax is still low. Yeah. And the market is, is high and it's a great time to sell stuff. So, you know, your problem, again, that gives you a problem. The problem is what do you put the money into when you do liquidate it, right? So you pay the tax, you've got some money left over. What do you do with it? Because the stock market not that attractive at the moment. Buy more property would be my answer uh, because of, of all the asset classes, hard assets are so, property assets are so well set up to handle most of these problems. You know, we've got pluses and minuses to most of these problems. A lot of people, fixed income, bond markets, and some companies in the stock market are just looking thinking, well, it's literally the devil or the deep blue sea. We either lose a bit or we lose a lot. <laughs> what do we want to do? In real terms, because of inflation, it's a problem. So all of those upsides that exist with the inflationary environment, the secular inflationary environment, as I've been saying for some time, uh, are best. we are best suited to take advantage of all of those. So, you know, you've got to think about, is it time to, you know, buy that Ferrari you've always been waiting for because you've delayed your gratification? I don't know, maybe it is. Uh, maybe it isn't. If it's if it's a depreciating asset, then that's up, that's up to you. Um, if it is, it might be an appreciating asset. And, and I imagine uh, that that revolves around where you're at in life and uh, where your head's at in terms of what you want. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's a good time to revise those things for the next five and ten years as well, Will, in terms of uh, we don't want to be in business to survive. We're not in business to survive, ultimately. There's an element of which April 2020, let's say, we went into survival mode. Right? If we stay in that sort of mentality... You know, if you get defensive, you can just 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 listen to the news for an hour a day, right? You will be ready to top yourself within about three weeks. Yeah, you won't hear good stuff you, it's, unless you wait to the end. It's the story about the cat stuck up the tree just to try and make you smile at the end. You know, you're not going to be very, you're not going to be feeling particularly bullish, especially at the moment. So stick to reality, stick to data, stick to non-clickbait items, and if you're like me, when you see BS, call it out when you see it as well uh, in the papers or, or wherever, because you've got to keep a, a balanced mindset around these things, Will. Well, well that, that's fantastic. Now, uh, Adam Lawrence is one of the, uh, the principals of the Boardroom Club, uh, which is a, a business support uh, service for property entrepreneurs, people who have got operating businesses within the property sector. Uh, if you're one of those, uh, check out Adam Lawrence on LinkedIn uh, and, and check out the Boardroom Club. We've, we've done a, uh, an excellent podcast uh, in the back episodes with Rod Turner, uh, who's one of the other, uh, not, not just experts, but uh, I, I think someone who uh, is out there doing it. They know their numbers. They're good at communicating it. Uh, definitely worth checking out. Um, so Adam Lawrence, um, the Boardroom Club, Partners in Property uh, co-founder, prolific uh, investor and uh, economics commentator. Uh, thanks again. Will, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. I'm Will Mallard and this is My Property World Podcast. Welcome.
welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. We do this by informing, entertaining and enjoying ourselves talking property, which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, My Property World is free and fun, so plug in your headphones and enjoy. We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property World profile.